You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and it's wonderful to have your company. In this episode, we're talking wisdom. Orash Arabi thinks that right now, a time in which business leaders are navigating unprecedented change is the time to apply wisdom to our leadership and decision-making. What does wisdom mean in the business context, and how can we get some of that? Well, he's here to tell us all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Orash Arabi. Orash Arabi, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, David. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Arash. Now, you have written a very neat little book called The Wise Enterprise, and we're going to talk about what you call your golden rules, the wise capabilities. There are four of them, and I'm going to suck from you all of your wisdom and your great ideas, and we're going to give the listeners some really practical advice on things they can do tomorrow. But before we get there, I'm really interested in how you landed on the idea of the word wise, the wise enterprise. Because it's really powerful. It's one of those words, wise is one of those words that evokes so many positive ideas and, and so much trust. Tell us the story of how you landed on that as a concept. I'm really happy to hear that. So I'll tell you, I'll, I'll take you a little bit back in time before even I came up with the name. So initially, I was, I mean, I've been thinking of writing a book for a few years now, but initially, what really drove me to start. And, you know, get my act together and start writing it was commercial reason. Because I thought, you know, if I have a book out now, it's going to help my business. It's going to increase my conversion rate on Google and everything. So I, you know, finally dedicated some time, started writing. I had the idea, I had the concepts, started putting it together, but I didn't have a good name for it. So I was thinking the book should be called something on the lines of helping organizations thrive in uncertainty. But whatever idea that came to my mind, it wasn't good enough. So I was workshopping it with various people, talking with various people, still nothing that made me happy. So even up until when I finished the book, I still didn't have a name for it. And the publisher was asking me, hey, what are you going to call this? You know, we got to do the cover design. What are <laughs> you, you going to call name. it? And there was a lot of pressure on me. I really wanted to get a good name and um, I wasn't happy with any of the ideas. Then one night I was just socializing it with a mate in uh, rock climbing. And uh, he said, well, you talk about emotional intelligence and things like that. Why don't you call it intelligent something? I said, hey, yeah, that's interesting. Should I call it intelligent company or intelligent enterprise or something like that? Intelligent business. And then I started Googling and I found, well, there are books like Intelligent Company, things like mm. that. And I was playing in my mind with that, mm, intelligent. What's one level above intelligence? That's wisdom. <laughs> Let's call it wise, wise company. How about wise enterprise? It rhymes as well. Yeah, very nice. Uh, that's a good story because, you know, the, the word wise is really powerful. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Orash. What is your definition of wisdom? You discuss it a little bit at the beginning of the book. You quote a couple of different thinkers. You pick out a definition that you don't think goes far enough. I'm interested in where you've landed on the definition of wisdom. I think, I mean, the common definition, the most accepted definition of wisdom is one level above 
knowledge and understanding. So once you have all the data, you take the information out of it, you build knowledge, build understanding, then you apply it and you get wisdom. But that's only part of wisdom in opinion. Wisdom is a lot more than that. Wisdom is also acknowledging where we don't have the knowledge. And it is to know what's right and to do the right thing. And not only that, help other people do the right thing too. Because sometimes, you know, when we only rely on knowledge and understanding, we may not be able to take in all the factors, all the variables, because, you know, the world is so complex. There's so many unknowns there that if you want to take them all in, it's basically impossible. So wisdom is, in a way, a spiritual thing. I mean, I don't want to make it fully spiritual because it's also empirical, but in a way to understand it, I would, I would say a little bit of God feeling involved, a little bit of spirituality involved. It's one level above normal senses, I would say, in decision-making. So the idea is that it's it's more than knowledge and understanding. That's one level, and that's a great level to get to professionally. It's a great level to get to for an organization to understand its market, what it produces, to understand its customers and the people working for it, all of those things. Then to be able to apply that wisdom, and, and that's hard as well. It's, it's one thing to know something, but it's a, a whole next step to be able to apply that knowledge. And we're talking about Bloom's taxonomy here, the, mm. the taxonomy of learning. And then wisdom takes it another step. You understand and you know, you're able to apply, but there's also this lens, this, this wise lens of being able to, to point all of that knowledge and application in the direction of doing the right thing. And you distill that really nicely in your book, doing the right thing for your, your shareholders, because that's a reality of running a company doing the right thing for your staff, the people who work in the organization and doing the right thing for the customers. And I, I really like the way you were able to articulate that in your book so clearly. All right, well, let's get to these wise capabilities or the golden rules. And this is where we're going to extract the real nuggets of gold from you, Orash. There are four of them, and I'm going to give away the secrets now, and then I'll let you build on them. The wise capabilities or the golden rules that Orash talks about in his book is number one, system thinking. Number two, emotional intelligence. Number three is leadership. And number four is organizational transformation. Because remember, we're talking about the wise enterprise being able to reshape their organization in this age of uncertainty. So let's work through each of those, Orash. And Tell us what you really mean, because there's nothing groundbreaking there. There's nothing that would surprise any listener or reader there, but it's it's the, the wisdom that you're able to extract out of those and the way they connect. Let's start with systems thinking. Why is that so important? And what kind of things can our listeners take away from this conversation and start to apply in the role that they perform in their organizations? Absolutely, David. Now, Systems thinking is basically a fancy word for having a holistic view, being able to see the big picture. You know, when there are connections that other people may miss, people who are systems thinkers, they can really see those connections and connect the dots there. I'm going to tell you a story which illustrates systems thinking. And you know, back in the days in the colonial times in India, in the city of Delhi, there was an issue with 
cobras. You know, Delhi was highly populated. There was too many cobras, lots of people being bitten. So the British officials, they wanted to get rid of these cobras. What they did was they thought, well, what should we do here? Let's introduce a bounty. Introduce a bounty. People who kill the cobras, they're going to bring the dead cobra and collect the money. And then, yep, sure enough, people started killing cobras, collecting the money, and the cobra population started going down. Then what happened was, after a while, some entrepreneurs figured out, "Mm, you know, we can make some money here, so let's start breeding cobras. And they started breeding cobras. (laughs) So then what happened? Yep. That's great because I was I was sitting there thinking, now how could that go wrong? That's a pretty good that's a pretty good simple plan, and it worked for a while. I'd, I'd, that would never occur to me. Let's breed cobras so that we can take them and collect the bounty. Brilliant in brilliant in a strange way. Great, keep going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then what happened was when the British officials found out, well, you know, this program is not working. We got to shut it down, and they shut down. But the program again, another sensible decision. But then what ended up happening was all those cobra breeders, they let loose of their cobras. They don't need to keep them anymore, right? So we're back to square one. <laughs> back to square one. Even worse, now you've got more cobras in, this, in the city. So the idea here is, well, decisions to solve a problem made the problem worse. And those decisions, both of those decisions, introducing a bounty and shutting down the program sounded like the right decision at the time of making them, but they weren't. Because the people who are making those decisions, they were relying on a partial picture of reality, not the entire picture. They weren't seeing the big picture. They weren't applying systems thinking. Now, one of the greatest systems thinkers of the 20th century, Russell Ackoff, he has an interesting metaphor. So he says, let's say you want to solve a problem. Let's say there's a car and you want to figure out how the steering wheel works. What you do is you analyze it. You know, that's a typical scientific approach where you, you know, take something to the lab, pull it apart, understand the parts. Then from understanding of the parts, you build up a knowledge around the whole. So you break up the car, you look at the steering wheel, there is a shaft going down, you know, there are gears there. And from looking and understanding those parts, you realize how come when you turn the wheel to the left, the car goes to the left and so on. But if you want to figure out why we are driving on the left side of the road in Australia and the right side of the road in the US, no matter how much analysis on the steering wheel you do, you're not going to find that answer. Your answer is outside the car, not in the car. That is a fascinating example. So what should the colonial British have done to solve the cobra problem? Because the cobra problem, because it sounds like on face value, their plan was pretty good, but they were outthought by some entrepreneurs and it came back around to bite them. What Great should question. the plan have been? How could they have reduced the cobra population? Great question. Now, before I answer that, there is problems like this all the time. You know, politicians, business leaders, they deal with it all the time. And you see so many of them in history, especially in Australia, we've got the cane toads and rabbits and foxes and so many things that happened here. Now, today, you're seeing how the politicians and business leaders are responding to COVID, for example. How do we know what's going to play out in 10 years or so, right? Those are similar challenges and problems that we are facing every day. And by improving our capabilities in systems thinking, we could also come up with better solutions with the problems and challenges that we're facing today on a day-to-day basis. 
Now to answer your question, let me turn that around and ask you a question. What was the problem that the British officials were trying to solve? Too many cobras. Too many cobras. I would say that's not a problem. That's a symptom of a problem. What was the real problem that they were trying to solve? Cobras being where humans didn't want them to be? Yeah. And then what, what's wrong with that? Dangerous. And just people dying. Mm -hmm. So the real problem they wanted to solve was reduce the casualties from cobra bites. Right. Good. Not necessarily reducing the number of cobras. Okay. Maybe by reducing the number of cobras, those cobras become super aggressive and kill more humans. Uh -huh. Or maybe they are eating smaller snakes and then those smaller snakes population booms and they kill more humans. So there are all the other factors that may be in play that when we focus on a single object of interest and don't look outside, you know, like the car metaphor, your answer lies outside. Your answer to the problem is not where you're looking for. Let's look outside that problem. Yeah. That's very good, Oresh. That helps me understand that. Now, I know you were about to say something else, so feel free to do that. But then let's take this system thinking into a, an environment we might recognize more directly into a modern organization and give us an example of where system thinking can help us there and what we can do about it. Yeah, let's go there and I'll continue the rest of my conversation with that example. Let's say, typical example, shareholders. They want more profit as an executive or someone in charge. How would you increase profit? What's a simple solution? First solution that comes to mind. Well, I mean, I know this is wrong, but you could increase the, the price of your product. You could increase the price of the product. Or so in a more. way, you've got to increase your revenue or mm. cut your costs, mm -hmm. right? Let's, for the sake of argument, say we want to cut the costs. What's going to happen if, if... Let's have a simplified view of the world first without systems thinking. Well, to cut the cost, we need to maybe lay off people who are generating a lot of cost. To increase revenue, maybe we need to hire people who are generating revenue. So for the sake of argument, let's say we hire more salespeople and we lay off some operational staff or IT staff or something, right? Those salespeople, they are going to sell more. So our revenue is going to go up. And with lower costs, our costs are down, so our profit's going to go up, obviously, you know? But that's short term. Because after a while, all those new sales and requests coming in, all those new clients, they need more operational help. And with lower staff in operational area, company will not be able to do a good job, and those customers will not be happy, and then revenue is going to go down, and potentially hell is going to break loose, right? Short-term thinking. Short-term thinking, absolutely. So there are 12, 11 laws of systems thinking laid down by a guy named Peter Senge, incredible author. I can't remember all of them from memory, but they, they go something like, for example, your short-term solution is not going to work. Or oh, one I remember clearly, this is a good one. He says, the easy way out usually leads back in. That's good. Yeah, there are 11 laws all similar to these kind of short-term looking at something. Short-term problem solving is not going to solve the problem. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. I'll tell you what, Arash, in, in just five or ten minutes, you have opened my eyes to the concept of system thinking like never before. 
if I'm determined to make that part of the way I see problems and approach challenges, what are some really tangible steps I can follow to make sure that I'm not looking at the world through a, a very narrow lens, that I am seeing the solutions that lie outside of my current view? What can I do to make sure I don't forget this? So I have a few tips, but I mean, ultimately, you've got to build in your systems thinking capability. It's a skill. Like any other skill, you've got to learn about it, read about it, and practice it. So a few great and fun people to read and watch, you know, Russell Ackoff, incredible speaker. You know, he's, he's such an entertaining speaker as well. It's fun. You know, you, if you listen to his YouTube talks, you're going to enjoy it. You know, other people like Peter Senge, great author. If you want to get technical, really take it to the next level. Meadows, Daniela Meadows, she's really good as well, but she's like extreme technical level. But some practical tips as well to improve your systems thinking is first, always, always ask question when you're solving a problem, what's the real problem I'm trying to solve? Am I hearing managing symptoms or am I attempting looking at the root cause? So that's tip number one. Tip number two is your answer, 90% of the times, lies outside your object of interest. So you got to look outside and start kind of modeling or understanding the ecosystem that your object is operating within. Once you have some, at least some rudimentary understanding of the things outside your object of interest, and technically speaking, we call this expanding the system boundaries, then you can start coming up with solutions. And you could run thought experiments. How would this solution react? You could ask yourself, what are some consequences of this, so potential consequences of this solution across time and space that I may have to pay or even other people may have to pay. I may not have to pay that because it may be a future thing that happens across time and space. And I guess that's a very practical way of doing systems thinking. But the more you listen to Ross Ackoff and these people, the more you're going to be, the mind is going to be open to this new way of thinking. I'm absolutely enthralled, Arash. That is really fabulous stuff. Russ Ackroff and Peter Sangai are people that I'm going to look into. That's a, a beautiful way of thinking about it and really nicely explained. We're going to move off this, not because we've exhausted the topic, but because we've got three more points to get through. Fantastic stuff. Now, let's move to number two. We're talking about Arash's wise capabilities or golden rules. Number one was system thinking. Number two is emotional intelligence. Now, this is a space I feel a lot more comfortable in. I've at least done some reading on this one. Tell us why this is so important for a wise enterprise and what can we do to sharpen our skills in this area? Absolutely. So the way I define emotional intelligence is based mostly based on the work of uh, Daniel Goleman. The original. And uh, Oh yeah, he is really good. And the, the definition that I adopted is one's ability to understand their own emotions and manage their own emotions, as well as that person's ability to understand his, understand the other people's emotions and influence the emotions of those other people. So already by talking about this definition, you see how powerful of a tool it is. It's incredible in terms of improving your own performance. You know, once you know exactly what you're feeling, and how to change those emotions to serve you or to channel the emotion towards the purpose that you're after. 
And also, once you have that capability to understand what other people are feeling and be able to imp- influence those emotions, that's, that's incredible. Like you can get people to, to help you achieve the goals and visions that you set out. I'm glad you said that you, you base your, your thinking from the original work of Daniel Goleman. So Daniel Goleman wrote his book, Emotional Intelligence, in 1995, which is incredible because up until that point, we didn't have a language. We didn't have words to describe the power of emotional intelligence. We used to think of it as, as things like charisma or insight or X factor, but Daniel Goleman helped us to understand exactly what it is. And in that original work, and I say I'm pleased that O'Rash is into Daniel Goleman because, of course, something so powerful, there's been many authors who have tried to take it on and create their own slightly different model with slightly different words, but really it's based on the same powerful concept that Goleman wrote about. And in that book, he made two points that were groundbreaking. The first is that emotional intelligence is more important than cognitive ability. And the second is that unlike cognitive ability, you can actually improve your own emotional intelligence. That's right. Absolutely. Now, his first point was slightly different than what you just mentioned. It's correct, but slightly different. So he's saying that people of equal cognitive ability, their emotional intelligence is what separates Mm, them. So for example, when we look at organizations, everyone almost has the same level of cognitive ability because if you're not smart enough, you won't even get a degree or anything like that. You won't even get into that organization. Permission to be there, permission to play. Absolutely. So once you're there, you're probably on the same levels of cognitive ability. Then it's your emotional intelligence that sets you apart and defines your career success. Mm, fabulous. And absolutely, emotional intelligence is a skill. Metaphor I use is swimming. You know, when once someone swims more, they read some swimming books, yeah, maybe they get an understanding of the biomechanics of swimming, but they need to jump in water and start swimming. They need to get a coach to help them, guide them, correct their movements and things like that. And I can testify for that. I myself had terrible emotional intelligence. And it was, I think, 2014 that my boss told me, you are terrible. You don't have emotional intelligence. And I said, what the hell is emotional intelligence? <laughs> and, then, and then she you know, pointed me to the Goldman's book. And then I read it and I started practicing. I got myself a coach, loved it, started improving. And things changed quite a lot. So Last year, I actually got certified by Daniel Goleman himself to deliver his course. And I'm actually an emotional intelligence coach now. So I can now pay back that to <laughs> the community and help build emotional intelligence for other professionals. What a fascinating story. So tell us, what's the difference between you now and you in 2014 before you had this conversation with your boss? How does that play out on a, in a practical way? Yeah. So in many ways, I'll give you some examples. So for example, I would do things without realizing why I'm doing them and coming up with excuses or reasons that, that why I did them, but really because, you know, I wasn't connected to my emotions, something would cause me to feel frustrated or mad or whatever. And that would result in certain behaviors that wouldn't serve my purpose. Actually, it would work to my detriment at work or something. And then I would blame it on the person or on the work or on some other reason. 
without realizing where it actually came from. And those emotions, some of them, they kind of build up. And if you don't want to look, if you're not comfortable with those emotions, you put them in a box and lock them up and you know, put them somewhere down below. But they're still there. They're still affecting your behavior and the things that you do and the, the way that you talk with people and things like that. So it helped me become more comfortable with all of my emotions, not just the happy ones and fun ones, you know. Get comfortable with your anxiety, with your fear, with your panic, with your stress and all those other emotions. Sadness, you know, I couldn't cry. I still have difficulty crying, but much better. <laughs> well, hopefully that's because you don't have too much to to cry about. That's what I'm hoping. Look, it is a, it's an amazing <laughs> yeah. skill and and as Goldman points out that that the higher you go in an organization, the more important emotional intelligence becomes because as you talked about before, you know, everyone in your organization, everyone at a certain level, everyone at your level has around about the same cognitive ability. They might not have the same experience, but they have around about the same cognitive ability. We're all in the same ballpark here. It's emotional intelligence that sets some apart from the others. All right, let's get on to number three. We've talked about systems thinking. We've talked about emotional intelligence. Now, number three, you're asking for trouble here. This is a leadership podcast, and yours, your number three point, your wise capability is simply leadership. I'm not going to let you off the hook here. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, what is your definition of leadership, Arash? So in order to answer your question, can I just do a quick, go back to emotional intelligence and connect it to leadership? Please. Great. So empathy, which is one of the key competencies of emotional intelligence, it's super important. Why is it super important? Because when we talk with other people and interact with other people, typically our understanding of them is based on putting ourselves in their shoes. But we are different people. You know, we have different history, different background, different life, different objectives, different culture, family, everything. So by putting ourselves in our situations, we are assuming how we would feel in that situation. But that's not true because they are different people, they have different feelings. And in order to influence people, in order to be able to lead them, we really need to understand how they feel and we can meet them where they are. So now with that in mind, let's move to leadership. So I think emotional intelligence is one of the highest, most important skills of great leaders, but simply leadership. I really like Simon Sinek's definition of leadership, and that's caring for the people around you. But I would also add another thing to it. And that's creating an environment where people can be at their best. So my definition of leadership is really truly caring for the people around you and wanting to do the right thing for them, help them, but also creating an environment where they can be at their best. I like it. I like that very much. Can be at their best. I'm actually writing that down. That's very good. Now, there's been a billion books written about leadership. There are a million podcasts of which this is the best leadership podcast. There's so much that you can take on about leadership. Just leave us with one or two things. You know, anyone who's listening to this podcast is consciously developing themselves as a leader. That's that's why they're listening. So let's just get your five cents worth on this great, big, enormous topic on things that you like to keep front of mind when you're 
operating as a leader, when you're thinking of yourself a leader, what are some of those really important things that you like to think about regularly? Absolutely. Now, of course, you know, as we said, emotional intelligence, top priority, super important for leaders. But also, you know, people talk about leaders being visionaries and setting great visions. So I want to re- a little bit unpack this and how I feel about setting visions and the power of good visions. So the example I give is Martin Luther King. His speech about, you know, I, I have a dream, famous speech. The vision that he was describing there, it wasn't his vision. It was everyone's vision. He was describing a place where everyone wanted to go and everyone wanted to be. Of course, he felt the, uh, you know, the segregation and the, all the problems, racial problems as well. So he was a victim too. So he also wanted to be there. It was not only him. It was everyone else's too. Another example would be Elon Musk. Elon Musk desperately wants to put people on Mars, right? So do everyone else who work in his companies. So he's basically articulating. Great leaders are basically articulating the vision of all their people who are following them, but in a way that it's emotional, in a way that people can connect with. And they describe it in a way that people can visualize it, you know, like a vision. It's a visualizable thing. Yeah, so sometimes, you know, when we talk about visions, especially in companies, they are a little bit single-dimensional, you know, from the shareholders' point. We want to be the most profitable company. Or sometimes it's just too fluffy. We want to be a company that helps communities thrive, for example. You know, that's also too fluffy. So how can a leader articulate a vision that's clear, visualizable, inspirational, and aspirational, and it's everyone's vision. That's super powerful. And not easy. And that's why leadership is a difficult thing. I I really like that you think about leadership, the angle from which you think about it. If someone was to ask me that same question I just asked you, my my answer would be completely different in a, in a different direction. You've got a very unique angle on it. And I, I really like that highlighting the quality of the vision and the power of the vision and and it's got to be something that everyone can latch onto. I mean, I mean that's um, you know it makes sense when when you hear it. But your way of attacking the concept of leadership is is very impressive. And to go back to your original question, well, how can you be a better leader, and how can you actually do things like this? In my opinion, it's an internal drive to help make the world a better place, and just be a good person, and you know take care of the people around you, like Simon Sinek talks about, improve the world, do the right thing. Once you have that drive, maybe not too much of a drive, maybe not too much of a like a selfish thing, well, I want to be the person who puts man on Mars. That wouldn't get you anywhere. But if you have that drive that, well, we really need to go to Mars, that's different. We're going to move off this one because it's a topic we could talk about for ages, but I do want to make one point about the power of a vision for a leader. And whenever I'm talking in workshops or or anything about this, I always think about the communication of a vision that is a leader's job. It's a, it's a must-do for a leader. I think of it in three levels. There's that organizational level. Where are we heading as an organization? And Elon Musk's telling his guys, hey, we're going to put someone on Mars, or we're going to create a driverless car that is going to stop road deaths, all, all that kind of very big picture vision stuff for his organization. The second level is the team, where I see this team fitting into that vision. Because remember, people, yeah, they can tap into the big picture vision, uh, vision, but they want to know where they fit. 
So it's really important for a leader to articulate where does this team fit in that vision that we've worked together to articulate for the organization. And then the third level is really obvious, is where do I see you individually playing a role in this vision? What part do I see you playing? What part do you see you playing? We've talked about where the organization's headed. We've talked about where your team fits in that and how your team will contribute to that vision. And now let's talk about how you will contribute to that, how you'll develop over time and what you can give to this quest of ours. I think that's really important because, yeah, it's really impressive that to have big picture visions for an organization, but all of those individuals who work in that organization are just that. They're individuals and they have their own need for that personal touch, that personal kind of insight into what their role's going to be. What do you think about that as a thought, Orash? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think if a leader can't communicate what's in it for everyone, every individual and every team, you're not going to care about that vision. And that needs a bit of empathy as well, you know, that emotional intelligence and understanding what those people care about, what those teams and individuals care about. But also having that, sh- that vision being a shared vision, it's super important. Something that people really want to contribute, something that people can easily see themselves part of. If it's something that you have to argue that why this vision is relative to you and why it's great and you can contribute to it. I don't think that's a good vision. Good vision is a vision that's simple and everyone immediately knows why I want to be part of this vision. All right. We're working through the wise capabilities. We're up to the last one, number four, which is organizational transformation. Why do we always need to be transforming our organizations? What is it with transformations, Arash? Yeah, there's so many of those transformations happening these days, right? Everyone's <laughs> transforming. It's becoming a buzzword now because people know organizations, leaders, they know there's something wrong and we need to transform. But most of those transformations are not getting anywhere. So we keep transforming and transforming. And so anyway, in this chapter, I draw a lot on the works of David Marquette and Craig Larman. David Marquette, he's one of my heroes. Like, I mean, I look up to him. He's absolutely amazing. He's, um, of course, a leadership uh, visionary. You might have heard about him or heard his story. He was the guy who was the captain of the U.S., one of the U.S. nuclear submarines and did an incredible job in setting up an environment of distributed decision-making in his submarine. Very entertaining guy in terms of when he talks, in his speeches. Highly, highly recommend checking out his talks on YouTube. There's a fabulous YouTube talk of his, isn't there, where they've done one of those whiteboard kind of cartoony things to it, and it is absolutely fantastic. And you're right, he is a speaker you can just listen to for hours. So engaging, so entertaining, and so humble. Oh, he's incredible. That humility is what inspires me, absolutely. And then the other guy, Craig Lorman, he is the founder of Less Framework, which is one of the famous Agile frameworks. And he talks a lot about organization transformation as well. Similar concepts to what uh, David Market talks about, but from a different angle. So one of the things that Lorman talks about is the idea of culture follows structure. So when an organization wants to transform, let's say you want to have a wiser organization, right? You want to transform your organization to become wiser. You want to have a culture of wisdom in your organization. You want to have a culture that promotes leadership, systems thinking, and emotional intelligence. 
you have to create a structure that promotes it. Now, the metaphor, the story that I used to illustrate this a few years ago, I think three years ago, it was we had a scandal here in Victoria, Australia, with the Victoria police that what they did was they gamed the breathalyzers. You know how when they do the breath tests for alcohol in the road, what the police did is over a few years, they just, you know, got tired of staying out late at night under the rain and just blew in the breathalyzer themselves meet the quota and go home. I didn't know about that. So it was like, yeah, something like a quarter of a million fake breath tests over a few years, quite a lot. And I was, I, I remember clearly, I was driving to work and listening to radio about this scandal. And there was a journalist interviewing the police commissioner, grilling him and saying, well, who is going to lose their job over this? Who's going to pay for this scandal? And I was yelling back to the uh, journalist, well, it doesn't matter because whoever else you put there as a boss, they're going to make the exact same mistakes. Because they've come from the same system. They come from the same system. It's not the person. It's the quotas. It's the system that you're creating that promotes and rewards this type of behavior. Maybe subconsciously, you know, maybe it's not clear that it's rewarding that behavior. But in a way, well, people always want to do, I mean, most of the time people want to do the right thing. They're just incentivized not to do the right thing. Especially if you're a police, you go through, you know, quite intensive training to do the right thing and they probably hire for the right people. But when you create an environment, a system that incentivizes and penalizes according to certain behavior, you're going to see those behaviors, obviously. And, you know, same idea what David Marquette talks about, you know, he says, for example, you can create an environment, you can change certain things in the environment that changes the culture. For example, you know, he has a funny story that they had a firefighting drill on the submarine and things went wrong and it's not good because submarines doesn't have fire exits. So you want to really <laughs> figure out a way to get rid of the fire. And people started finger pointing, oh, it's your fault. It's their fault. You know, they didn't do this and they didn't do that. And he gets a bit, his stuff and says, there are no they on Santa Fe. Santa Fe is the name of the submarine. So he bans the word they. No one is allowed to use the word they anymore on the summer. And suddenly by doing that, by changing that, by doing that structural change, people started to collaborate more. How? Like the next day, is this cadet from engineering department goes to captain and says, hey, captain, I can't install the pump that we were supposed to install. Captain says, how come? And then the reason was the engineering department didn't order the right pump. So he says, yeah, Captain, because they didn't order the right pump. Oh, sorry, because we didn't order the right pump. Oh, uh, sorry, Captain, don't worry about it. I'm going to fix it. And he walks out, right? Because <laughs> all of a sudden he owns, he owns the problem. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's this little structural change, like Google, for example. Again, this is a story from uh, David Marquette. Google, they wanted to improve collaboration in one of their campuses. So they switched the lunch table, tables in the cafeteria with larger table. So people, you know, more people sit together, more people get to know each other and collaborate more. Now, these are the little structural changes that we can do in an organization to promote the type of culture, the type of mindset, the type of behavior that we're after. So a lot of people would be sitting here relating to that story about the guy who was talking about the pump because engineering didn't order the right pump and all of a sudden it was not they, it was we. A lot of people 
work in organizations that try very hard to not have silos, but everything about the way the organization is structured pushes them back into their silos, right up to the way their executive leader, whatever they might be titled, goes to his or her next level meeting, whether it's the board meeting or the C-suite meeting or wherever it is, and represents that part of the business. And they all sit around this big table representing their patch. What are some of the smart things that organizations can do at any level to try and break down those very real silos that exist? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. And um, I have a change management framework at the last chapter of the book, which in some ways answers this question, but let me just quickly take you through it. I mean, there's a lot to it, but I'm just going to give like a two second view of it. To have successful transformation and get rid of those silos or make them, help them collaborate better, we need to have a top-down and bottom-up approach at the same time. And typically you see in organizations bottom-up, people at the bottom, there is typically most of the time there is some drive there because they feel the pain, they want to collaborate, they want to get rid of the silos. But then the top-down or the middle level is where it struggles. Now, one technique that I've found is super powerful is when you have the executives, like the CEO or other executives, come down and empower people at the bottom to transform the organization. So I've seen a number of those that go really, really well. And typically they involve some sort of empowerment. Like, for example, one of the ones that I was involved in recently, the CEO tells the company that this team, they're allowed to do whatever they want to do. There's only two rules. Don't break the law. Don't do anything unethical. Everything else, just they're allowed to do it. So, you know, all those processes, procedures, but we've done this like this for all the time, but this is the way we do things around here. All of them are out of the window because those people can say, well, we are not break. Are we breaking the law? No. Are we doing anything unethical? No. CEO said it's okay. So they can really push it really hard. And I mean, this is not new. This is from Taichi Ono back in the days of Toyota in 1920s when Toyota transformed itself and they you know, became this lean machine and you know, the lean manufacturing came out of it. But I think that's a big component of it, basically. That is fantastic information, Orash. I love the way you talk about it all and describe it. It's it's a fabulous book, and, and I've enjoyed this conversation even more. Thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Thanks so much, David. I quite enjoyed our chat too as well. Really good. That was Orash Arabi. He's got this wisdom thing nailed. I loved his mixture of theoretical understanding and real life storytelling. And if you couldn't tell, the whole concept of system thinking had me enthralled. I need to find more about that. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Orash on the Lessons Learn page for this podcast. You can find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye.